0: Thank you, Pastor. It is a blessing to be here tonight. If you're glad to be here, say amen, would you? Sometimes those are the only amens I get. But uh, it's already been a blessing to be here tonight. And uh, I want to mention the books. I haven't specifically mentioned those this week. I only have a few titles left. This is the last book I've written based on uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, uh, Bible Truth for Perilous Times. And uh, have one copy of this, Bible Truth on Calvinism. If you're not familiar with Calvinism, you ought to get this book. If you don't get but one book from our table, get this one right here. Because it will embolden you against Calvinism for good. Um, Bible Truth on Nehemiah is not a verse-by-verse commentary, but it deals with the nine factors that were involved in the completion of the wall in such a phenomenally short time. Uh, Bible Truth from Galatians is a verse-by-verse commentary of all six chapters. Bible Truth from Jude... And I found 20 cardinal doctrines in the book of Jude. Isn't it amazing what God can cram into a little 25 verse book? Matter of fact, I encourage people to memorize that whole book and recite it regularly. And uh, this is one of four volumes. Volume one deals with the world of flesh and the devil. Volume two deals with heaven and hell. Not what the world thinks about it, but what the Bible says about it. They have some bizarre and weird ideas about heaven and hell, don't they? And uh, volume three deals with backsliding and chastening. And volume four deals with submission and rebellion. And um, I have just a few copies left. Uh, I wish you would help me with those. I won't have to truck those back through, the li- uh, back through the airport again, if you will. Appreciate the nice meal today, a fantastic meal. And I enjoyed as much of it as I could. And I noticed some other people doing the same thing. And a lot of people felt real liberty down there at that table today. I watched them, you know. And I'm going to tell you, that corn was delicious. It uh, was grown in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I understand Appreciate your friendship. Uh, I try to make friends everywhere I go. Not everybody likes me. I know you don't know I'm, you don't believe that. I, it's hard for me to believe. It's true. Uh, everybody likes my wife. Everybody likes my wife. Not everyone likes me. And I don't understand it. <laughs> but if I haven't gained your friendship, if you don't like me, keep it to yourself and let me think you did. You do. And God will bless you for the sacrifice. And I'll be blessed thinking you're my friend. You don't have to lie about it. Just don't say anything, you see. Anyway, appreciate your friendship. You folks have been very kind to me in the meetings this week. appreciate your prayers. I wish you would pray for us. I have still a lot of traveling to do this year. And I'm very concerned about the welfare of my wife's husband. So you be sure and pray for my traveling. Let me ask you to do something. Teach your children and grandchildren to pray for me. I love it when children are praying for me. I'm telling you, there are no pleasing play attitudes when they pray. Uh, Man, they just go right to the point. They might ask God to bless you while they're asking God to bless their dogs and cats. If I was a little, I'd bless their dogs. It wouldn't bless their cats, but it would bless their dogs. Amen. Anyway, teach your children to pray for us. I'd appreciate that so much. Appreciate the love offering and the opportunity to spend some time with your pastor. I have met several hundred pastors in the last 38 years, and your pastor is in the upper echelon. Of all the pastors I've known, he is a unique man and a great pastor, a great teacher, a great uh, preacher. Uh, what else would you want me to say, brother? <laughs> no, I'm kidding him. When I, but I mean every bit of that, folks. I mean every bit of that. Um, you have had a great pastor here, folks, and lots of people haven't, but you have here. You know what it's like to put up with a crowd like you for 23 years, Amen. No, I was kidding, mostly. (laughs) (laughs) Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I'd like to read verses 16 through 34, but I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to read verse 22 and 3. I make reference to quite a number of other verses in the message, and especially the introduction. And, um, you you know, most evangelists will take their watch off, and they go over real high like this. And they're supposed to tell everybody that you know it's gonna be conscious of the time, see it. I don't know if I've said this to you or not, but one little girl said to her mother, said, Mama, what does that mean? She said, Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I will try not to be long tonight. I heard about one church where the pastor was rather long-winded and the people were very friendly. And I figured out, I surmised that he keeps the devil printed pre- preached out of everybody, and so they're nice people. But he always told him, said, don't you dare let someone visit this church and you not make some contact with them, have some deliberate conversation with them. Don't you do that. One of the ladies, I another lady who was there for the first time, and she said in her heart, as soon as the last amen had said, I'll make a beeline to that lady, and she did. And she extended her hand, and she didn't know the lady couldn't hear well. She said, my name is Gladys Dunn. And the lady looked at her inquisitively for a few moments and said, yes, I'm glad he's done too. <laughs> Acts chapter 17, verse 22 and 3 reads like this. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. With that, let's bow our heads now and pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the going zone here this week. It has been a blessing just to be here. And, of course, have the privilege of preaching in the meetings. That's an added blessing. And the good service tonight, the splendid fellowship, the good selection of hymns, the special music, all of it has been a blessing. We're down now to the most, most important part, and that's when the Word of God is written and enlarged upon the sense is given. It's my lot to do that. I love doing that. I've been doing that most of my life, and I want to do it the rest of my life. But I realize tonight that I do not inherently possess the ability to do that. For, Lord, I realize preaching is not merely a demonstration of the flesh, but it is a matter of declaring the Word of God and the power and demonstration of the Spirit of God. So my prayer is tonight you'd breathe on the service and breathe on the sermon and breathe on my servant. Help me declare the Word of God clearly tonight and in such a manner that all of us will take some things home with us from it. Be encouraged by it or even challenged by it. Maybe be informed by it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen we have an introduction. I want you to notice that Paul is in his second missionary journey. And by now he is preaching Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and Berea. And if you've read his ministry, followed his ministry in the book of Acts, you know the Jews ran him out of practically every city he went to. Uh, you know, I like when Paul went to any city, the first place he'd go was the Jewish synagogue and reason with them or debate with them or argue with them whatever was necessary. And usually his, uh, he'd raise welcome out pretty quick and then he'd go find some Gentiles somewhere. They ran him out of all those towns, all those places, uh, and uh, things were going pretty well down in Berea until they learned, um, the Jews in Thessalonica learned about it, and they made it their business to come down there too and get him run out of that place as well. You know, when Paul preached in a town and left town, everybody knew a preacher had been there. Uh, Everyone there was either sad, mad, or glad when Paul left. He was a great preacher, a great man of God. The Jews ran about from there. By the way, I like those Bereans, don't you? Verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. That's what we have to do, folks. Searching the Scriptures daily. My goodness, uh, most Baptists need to improve on that. Matter of fact, I believe the reason why Watchtower claims that 40% of their proselytes are former Baptists is because Baptists don't read their Bibles like they need to. You know, we have eternal security, and so we, we don't have to behave ourselves, do we? We have eternal security. We're going to heaven. A lot of people think about it like that. But notice now Paul is in Athens, Greece, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city, wholly given to idolatry. Now, a lot of things can be said about Athens. It was a unique city. It had all the desirable characteristics of any great city in the ancient world. For instance, it was a city of popularity named after the Greek goddess uh, Diana, De- a- Athena, I'm, I'm trying to get that right, Athena. It uh, was the most celebrated city in all of Greece, I understand. In addition, that was a city of prosperity, reputed to be one of the, one of the wealthiest cities in all of Greece at that time. In addition, that was a city of philosophy, frequented by uh, great-name philosophers, some you've heard about, Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, and, and uh, Demosthenes, and Zeno, and Epicurus, and quite a number of others, without a doubt. Uh, by the way, I did a little research on Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. They exerted their teachings in their societies for 130 years. I do not know what these men taught, and I could not care less. But Jesus taught for three and a half years and multiplied millions of people's lives and been touched by Jesus Christ and what he taught, amen. My, well, we had a great philosopher, didn't we? Great philosopher. But anyway, um, by the way... Uh, these fellows taught, and a lot of people studied about them in school. I did never studied study about it, any of these philosophers. I don't care. I don't have time to waste on that kind of stuff. But notice it was also a city of intellectuality in addition to the things I mentioned already. The greatest university in the ancient world was located there. It was known as the intellectual crossroads of the world. It was also known as the gathering place for the men of great concepts and the great thinkers of that era. And they thought it a privilege to assemble there. It could be called the zenith of knowledge, the apex of learning, and the epitome of human wisdom. I think Paul nailed it well in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two when he said, The Jews require sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. That's what this was all about, Greeks seeking after wisdom. Now, there are two noteworthy things about Paul that I point out here in continuing the introduction and giving you a background for the sermon tonight. There were some things he was not moved by. See, Paul was not on a vacation. He was in the midst of a vocation. Uh, Somebody told me some time ago, vacations, when you drive 2,000 miles, to get your picture taken to the side of your car, you know. (laughs) You know how people go off on a vacation. They find a a, a nice postcard, you know, and and they'll put a little inscription on there and sign it with love. And underneath that, P.S., wish you were here. And you know good and well, they didn't mean that, brother. They're glad you're not there. But anyway, most people take a vacation these days and come home to get some rest. (laughs) And uh, I think I understand that. My wife and I have talked about taking a vacation. We haven't taken one in a long, long time. And uh, when we think about that, the question comes up, where would we go? We've already been there, amen, (laughs) all over the United States and Canada. But anyway, there were some things he was not moved by. He was not moved by the magnificent Parthenon on the Acropolis. I understand that thing still, the remnants of it still stands there today. Built in the fifth century before Christ. He was not moved with the architectural beauty of that city nor its ornate idol temples or its many theaters that dotted that city. Those things did not impress him at all. He's not on vacation, folks. He's on business. But notice there were some things that did. For instance, the sensuality produced by the wicked philosophers prevalent there did move his heart. By the way, we have a lot of those in America right now. Always deteriorates into sensuality. He, moved, he was moved by the degradation, the debauchery of its citizens. He was moved by the slavery of these Athenians to sin. You know, the world, the devil has really pulled one on the world. He has them thinking they're free and we're bound when in fact we're free and they're bound. The Bible said in 2 Timothy 2.19, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of, of the flesh and so forth. Uh, the devil has them tricked into thinking they're free and we're bound. We're not, listen, we're free. Amen. We're free and you say, wasn't Paul in prison? Some, yes, he was, but he was the freest prisoner you'll ever read about. Amen. <laughs> I thought about Paul. I thought about the devil persecuting Paul and he got to feeling sorry for the devil. It wasn't working. I mean, wherever he locked him up at, he said, I, I just feel like I'm right at home wherever I am. And he felt that way. But notice, uh, none of that, The blindness of these quote-unquote educated people. You know, it's an amazing thing in America right now that educated people, I'm talking about men that have lots of degrees, are still asking what is truth. I thought that was settled a long time ago. Amen. We have the truth. God tells the truth. Amen. The Word of God is the truth. Someone said philosophically, uh, truth is anything God said about anything, and that's true because Titus 1-2 tells us that God cannot lie. Whenever God says it, folks, you don't need a second opinion, do you? But uh, Vance Havner said it pretty well. He said, in these days we have lots of degrees but very little temperature. (laughs) He had a lot of wise sayings, didn't he? You know what has replaced truth relative to thinking? And relative to thinking is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of in my life. Uh, So what does that mean, preacher? They believe everything is relative and nothing is absolute. And I've got a little bit of devil in me sometimes. I like to rub these people. You're telling me that nothing's absolute? That's correct. Nothing is absolute. Now, wait a minute. You're saying that nothing is absolute. That's right. Nothing's absolute. Wait a minute. You're saying nothing is absolute. Absolutely, they say. <laughs> it's amazing. They do come up with one absolute. Someone said Little Willie had a fit insane. he placed his head in front of a train. Little his friends were amazed to find how it broadened a Little his mind. You know, the Karl Marx educational system in America is the worst mistake America ever made. And I mentioned Adam Weishaupt the other night. I didn't say much about him, but he was, um, he was a Jesuit trained Jew, a Roman Catholic fellow. And um, he set the agenda for the Illuminati on May the 1st of 1776. And he's and, and the unique thing about what he said was, we'll accomplish this because we will control education and the news and entertainment. And by the way, they do control that and have controlled it longer than we've been living, any of us, for that matter. That's why you don't know any journalists that are <coughs> conservative, hard patriotic people. But um John Dewey, who gets credit for being the father of progressive education, I understand, went to Russia in nineteen twenty eight and learned how to live America into socialism but with the government school system, and they've done that. If you have your children in a government school, you need to get them out as soon as you can. Grandkids, get them out as soon as you can. It's turned into a real brainwashing institution. They're not trying to teach these kids uh, it's just to brainwashing. That's why 70 percent of the millennials that's ages 24 to 29 that were polled recently said, "We prefer socialism over capitalism." Fifty percent said, we, we prefer communism over capitalism. Now that's not because they've lived under it. It's because they've been taught that. They've been taught a pretty sight of it. I read about one man had his daughter in a university, and by the way, don't ever send your kids to a university, not anymore. But anyway, she came home with socialist philosophy, like they all do now, most of them anyway. And uh, and she and her dad were having a debate about socialism as opposed to capitalism. And, and uh, she had a friend, by the way, his daughter had a 4.0 average. Her friend, closest friend, had a 2.0 average. And they were talking for a while, and finally the dad said, well, I'll tell you what you ought to do. He said, you ought to give one of your points to your friend. You'd have three each, three oh each. She said, I'm not going to do that. All she does is party. She's not interested in working. She does not want to earn her credits and so forth. He said, uh, welcome to the Republican Party, young lady. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher said socialism works real good as long as other people's money holds out. <laughs> Anyway, um, three things Paul knew about these Athenians, just to preface my sermon tonight. He, first of all, knew they were religious. They had an altar to every known God, according to verses 22 and 3. Did you notice that? Verse 23 said, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. He knew they were religious. In addition to that, he knew that religion could not save them. It never has, and it never will. Religion has never saved... Listen, religion will never produce regeneration. Now, regeneration might make you religious, but religion's not going to make you regenerated. And the world doesn't understand that. A lot of people in America don't understand that. You ever thought about this? The Pharisees had the best religion in the world. Did you know that as far as religion goes? They weren't cultists. They believed in the God of heaven. They believed the prophets. They believed a Messiah was coming. They didn't recognize Him, but they believed one was coming. They went to church every Sabbath day. They gave a tenth of their income, well, a lot of Baptists do. They prayed privately and publicly, read their Bibles, religiously, lived exemplary lives. They had the best religion in the world, but they did not know Christ. And uh, good religion will take you right straight to hell. See, the book of Acts records that most of the people that got saved in the book of Acts, especially those who were named ...were religious people before they got saved. Acts 2.41, that they that glad to receive His word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. You know who they were? They were religious Jews that came from 16 different nations. Many of them traveled a long distance to be there for the feast in Jerusalem. You can't question their religion or their sincerity in it, you see. But they did not know Jesus. And 3,000 of them got saved and baptized... And continued, Acts 2.42. By the way, I like that. Amen. I preached a message one time entitled, They Continued. You know what we need today in our churches? We need some people to account the cost, commence the task, and continue the task, and complete the task, and celebrate that completion one day in heaven. Continuing. Every Baptist church has been around very long has a lot more people on their rolls than they have attending church. And it ought not to be that way. But anyway, in the book of Acts, the idea was they got saved and they continued. I like what the Bible said in Acts 8.36. Uh, here's a man, uh, Philip. He's preaching to that uh, eunuch from Ethiopia. He preached the gospel to him out of Isaiah 53. By the way, if you couldn't preach the gospel out of Isaiah 53, you couldn't preach that out of John chapter 3. Amen. And, uh, and the man got saved. As they went on the way, verse 36, as they went on the way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What then me to be baptized? And Philip answered and said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the church to stand still and went both down to the water and baptized. Acts chapter 2, uh, Cornelius, a devout man, one that feared God with all of his house, which gave much honor to the people, prayed to God always. Four things were said about him that you probably can't say about any of your neighbors. Even a lot of people go to church. Devout man, one that feareth God will over his house. Gave a bunch of honest people, prayed to God all the way. Very, very religious man, but wasn't saved until Peter came over to preach the gospel to him. Now here's something else he knew. Not only did he know they were religious, and not only did he know that religion could not save them, he also knew this they desperately needed the truth. And uh, that's what the message is all about tonight. There are four truths I want to give you that Paul gave to them. Paul is preaching to the intellectual elites of the world. Aren't you glad Paul was a sincere preacher, amen? Uh, You know, when Paul preached to the intellectual elites, he didn't rise to the occasion like some preachers would. You know, button exact, button on the, it's still buttons, that is. Uh, Button that coat, you know, right at the right place. Be sure everything's intact. He didn't rise to the occasion. You know what he did? He preached the gospel in such simple terminology, he knew those Jews wouldn't get it. I mean, those those people wouldn't get it if he didn't make it simple. (laughs) He preached the gospel to them. Some of them got saved. But if you're making notes, write this down. First of all, he declared the truth about God. The Bible said in verse 23 as I passed by, beheld your devotions, and beheld your devotions. I found in all of this inscription to the unknown God, him therefore that you ignorantly worship, him declare unto you. And I'm going to quote someone here that knows more about this than I do. That said, there has never been a people group discovered anywhere in the world, however remote or primitive they were, that did not have some form of sacrificial worship. You know why? Man knows there is a God. God put it in them. God said they know. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Romans 1, 19 and 20, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God said there's no such thing as a bona fide, honest atheist. You know what they are? They ought to be honest and say, I'm a rebel, I refuse to believe what I know in my heart is true about God. Let me tell you something dumb. I may have mentioned this before. They spend millions of dollars finding a God they claim does not exist. Does that make any sense? By the way, you ever notice they don't ever fight against Allah? They have no problems with Allah. They're fighting our God. You know why? Because they know he's real. They know he is real. By <clears> the <throat> um, way, uh, the world knows little, very little about God. I, mean, I used some, I used some um, humor the other night talking about that. Very little about God. Um, You ask someone today, are you saved? Most of the time they're going to say, saved from what? And they're not trying to be smart. They just don't know what you're talking about. When I got saved when I was 15 years old, I could have gone to any neighbor I had and said, Bill, why aren't you saved? He would have known exactly what I meant. We could start right there talking about that subject because it was common knowledge. It's not common knowledge now. People don't know what you're talking about. Hosea 4, 6 said, but my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. America is being destroyed today for lack of knowledge. The three truths that Paul declared here about God. Number one, he declared the truth about creation. He created the world. That's what he said in verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, whether not in temples made with hands... <laughs> You know, the first truth God gave the human race was, did not have anything to do with redemption or anything of that nature. The first thing God said right out the gate was, I created this. Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And the light He called day, and the darkness He called night. And the evening and the morning of the first day. If you're looking at me right now, you're looking at one preacher that believes that. So, will you think that was a 24 hour day? Absolutely. If it wasn't, you tell me when God made one. Amen. In the beginning, God created. I like that. Uh, my wife and I read through the Bible periodically together. And, of course, we have our daily devotions beside that. But we read through the Bible just uh, from start to finish, just, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis, to Re- and, uh, and quite often, I'll see a verse that indicates that God created, and I'll make a note on the margin. And i want to tell you there, our Bible is full of reference to the fact that God is the one that created this thing. Amen. By the way, I don't even believe in theistic evolution. Uh, the- theistic evolution was invented to make room for evolution. And the God I'm serving didn't have to have millions of years to pull this off. Amen. Hebrews eleven three 3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God spoke this world into existence. But anyway, it refutes atheism. There is no God. Refuse polytheism. There are many gods. Pantheism. God is everything. Fatalism. It all just happened. Materialism. No spirit. No spiritual world. Even evolutionism in any form. If you're looking at me, folks, I do not believe. Never have believed evolution. I had a young man tell me one time, he said, "I believe in evolution, and I'm a Christian." No, you're not. If you believe in evolution, the Christ you have is not the one of the Bible. The Christ of the Bible spoke this world into existence. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Revelation 4, 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure, they are were created. Tell those Jehovah's Witnesses to put that in their pipe and smoke it. Amen. <laughs> Exodus twenty eleven said, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the scene, and all that in them is, and rest of the seventh day. That's what the Bible said, folks. That verse is as true as John three sixteen is. Psalm 33, 6 said, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9 said, For he spake, and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I am serving a God that spoke the worlds into existence. Anyway, Isaac Newton was a great Christian. You know, I studied about him in school. You know what I learned? A lot of these men I studied about in school were Christians, but they forgot to tell us. Isaac Newton was a devout believer, according to what I've read. Anyway, um, he had a friend that made a model universe for him. Had the earth, had a sun, had the planets, had the moon. Set it up in his office. And it was a marvelous thing. One of his friends came by who was an atheist. He said, oh, that is phenomenal. Who made that? He said, nobody made it. It just happened. His friend said, don't tell me that. I know that this didn't just happen. Who, who built this for you? He said, nobody. It just happened. He said, nothing like that just happens. He said, well, that's what you've been trying to tell me for years. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, by the way, evolution has destroyed the faith of multiplied millions of young people in America. Sir Edward Keith gets credit for the statement. He said evolution, and he's an evolutionist, evolution's unproved and unprovable, has been disproved a hundred years. But then he said, It's the only alternative we have to creationism. You know what that reveals? An utter rebellion against the God of creation. In other words, they'd rather be they'd rather believe a theory than to believe the truth. By the way, they they're rebelling against the God of creation. He created man, not only did he create the world. The Bible said in verse 26, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before one appointed and the bounds for their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, uh, God created man, and Paul is telling them that God did that. They probably have some weird ideas about how man got here. You know, the Bible specifically says in Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. In Genesis 2:7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Uh, God created men and women, and it has never changed. And some of these people today are so dense. Uh, I read about one couple that's going to let their little boy decide whether he's a boy or a girl. I mean... If, God, if I was the Lord, I'd take that little boy away from them, amen. <laughs> they will ruin his life. And a lot, of these, a lot of these people that have fallen for this gender thing, uh, some of them are committing suicide now, and you don't hear much about it. And, and they really resist, they really regret what they've done, but they can't undo what they've done. Somebody needs to pay for that. And they will one day. But listen, He's the God of creation. He created the world. Here, He created man. He also is the God of compassion, verse 27, that they should seek the Lord, if they might feel out like Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. Uh, let me tell you something, a seeking sinner and a seeking Savior can get together. I mentioned Cornelius a while ago, didn't I? You know, in Acts chapter 10 verse 2, he, he is praying the only prayer God will listen to a sinner pray. He wants to know God. And an angel spoke to him and said, send for Simon Peter. He'll come over and tell you. When I first read that, I thought, why don't you tell him, yeah, angel, you angel, know, why don't you go ahead and tell him? God didn't give it to the angels. I mean, God could have written it in the sky. But God chose to use human instruments in communicating the gospel. That's people like you and I, amen. The Bible said in Isaiah forty-five twenty-two, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Jeremiah 29, 12, then she called unto me, and you should go and pray unto me, And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of thee. God, listen, God wants to be found by every sinner. But he wants to be found by someone that's serious about it. He's not interested in somebody trying to find him who only plans to be a Sunday morning Christian, for instance. With all of her heart, he said. Two things about his love, it defies description. John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world. That doesn't tell us how much. (laughs) We have verses like Ephesians 2, chapter 2 and verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith the love Not only, folks, does it defy description, it defies comprehension. Ephesians 3.19, To know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. You may be filled with all the fullness of God. Passeth knowledge. You know what that means? None of us are going to get this figured out. None of us are. Anyway, he's the God of choice, not only compassion, not only creation. The Bible said in verse 27 that they should seek the Lord. If they I feel like to and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. The Bible said in Isaiah 55 and verse 6, Seek you the Lord while he may be found, calling you upon him while he is near. By the way, it is a choice, isn't it? Allah lets no one make a choice. We convert with the power of the sword. Jesus wouldn't have it any other way except by choice. I'm saved because I chose to respond to the proposition God made me about salvation. He didn't force me into this. Nobody else. He preached the truth about God. He preached, preached the truth about repentance. Look at verse 30. The times of this ignorance God winked at. Now I command men everywhere to repent. There are two things that need to be considered about repentance. One, the definition of it. Um, the three things involved in this definition. Uh, seeing self... Like God sees you. Seeing sin as your biggest problem and seeing the Savior is the only solution. To me, that's what repentance is. Repentance is not an action as much as it is an attitude of heart. I believe in repentance, folks. The Bible teaches about it. Some people have a weird idea about it. The Bible said in Ecclesiastes 7.20, There's not a just man on earth that doeth good and sineth not. Proverbs 20 and verse 9, Who can say I've made my heart clean? I'm pure from my sin. The implication is, being a rhetorical question, no man can claim that. We're all sinners. We all need to be saved. But we see ourselves like God sees us. You're never going to get saved unless you see yourself like God sees you. You're never going to get saved unless you see yourself like God sees you and see sin as your big problem that you can't deal with and see the Savior as the only solution to it. Now, if you come up with a better definition of repentance than that, I'd be glad to listen to it, folks. Well, you know where I got my definition for repentance? I got it from God. God repented, not of sin. We're not talking about sin. Uh, you know, when God repented, every time the Bible says God repented, He took a different course than He was set to take. For instance, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, about the... Uh, about these uh, people in that wicked nation. God saw their works, and they, that, they turned, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and uh, did it not. When God repented about something, it means he took a different course, different direction. When you repent, it precipitates a different course in your life. Repentance is not a change in life, but it precipitates one. I read about on the humorous side, I read about this lady that somebody asked her some dumb question about Jonah and she didn't know. She said, well, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. He said, well, what if he's not there? She said, well, if he's not there, you ask him. <laughs> there is the definition. There is the demand. Verse 30, the times of the singers God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It's still in the Bible, folks. John the Baptist preached it in Matthew chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. In those days came, the Bible said, in those days came John the Baptist preaching the wilderness of Judea and saying repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached repentance. Mark 1.15 the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent ye and believe the gospel. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it in Matthew 4.17. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Now listen folks America needs to repent. People need to repent in America. I you know, the verses that really stick in my mind are Luke 13, 3, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Verse 5, same statement. I read about a certain Dr. Evans that was preaching at the Pacific Garden Mission in uh, Chattanooga. I mean in Chicago. And uh, one night he preached on repentance. I understand using those verses. And when he got finished, one of the guys that resided there, a big old broad shouldered guy, came up mad angry took his fist and just floored this preacher went back to his room the next night dr. Evans is back to preach again that guy's sitting out there he preached a sermon finally the guy got a chance to come forward he said dr. Evans last night you preached on repentance and you made me so angry I used my fist and put you on the floor He said, I went home last night and I laid on my bed. And he said, on the ceiling, it said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He said, I turned over on this side and on the wall, it said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He said, I turned over on this side and it said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. I come back tonight to repent, he said. (laughs) He preached the truth about God, about repentance, and also about the resurrection. Look at verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, that he hath raised him from the dead. By the way, the credibility of Christ rises and falls on whether he rose again. The three powerful witnesses to the resurrection. Paul declared, verse 31: Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath he raised him from the dead. You know what Jesus said in John 10, 18? No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have the power to lay it down and take it again. This commandment have I received my Father. And they had a lot of debate about that. There was a division among those people because of that. Paul declared it. I like what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3: For I delivered unto you first of all that which also received how the Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that it was buried. Then rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And it was seen of Cephas and then of the 12. and After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained of this present. And after that, he was seen of James and all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me as a one born, born out of due time. If you've ever wondered why those apostles were so anxious and willing to lay their lives down for Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ, it's because with their eyes, they had actually seen him after he rose from the dead. Paul could have said, hey, look at me. You see these eyes? I saw Jesus myself after the resurrection. Well, that, I've never seen him with my eyes, but I will. <laughs> Paul declared it. Peter declared it in Acts four fifteen or three fifteen. They killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead. Whereof we are witnesses, he said. The angels declared it. The Bible said in Matthew twenty eight six, He is not here for He's risen, as He said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. By the way, we all got an invitation to the Holy Land right there. Amen. I've never been. You may have. I'll probably never go. I don't have to go. I believe it. Uh, I said the credibility of Christ rises and falls and whether he rose from the grave. There lived a fellow one time, a great legal mind, uh, Simon Greenleaf, I think his name was. And he was an atheist. He said, we're going to try the resurrection teaching by legal process and we're going to prove it's a myth and we will be done with it. And like some others, he got in the Bible and the Galilean got him. My advice to an atheist is if you want to stay an atheist, you better stay out of the Bible. Yeah. Amen. General Lewis Wallace learned his lesson, didn't he? He got saved reading that book. But anyway, uh, he discovered that the resurrection was a reality. But he kept on with the, the, the process, the legal process. When he finally got finished with it, he made this astonishing statement. There's more evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than there is that Alexander the Great ever lived on planet Earth. Now, I don't have to hear that, but I'm glad the world hears some stuff like that every once in a while. <laughs> some did not believe. not everyone's going to believe. Verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. You know, intellectuals have a tendency to not believe in the resurrection. That, that had to be supernatural. But they believe other things that are supernatural. There's something wrong with that. Amen. That's inconsistent. Uh, they're not intellectually honest. The Sadducees didn't believe it. Someone said they were called Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's enough to make you sad, you see. And so they were called Sadducees. <laughs> Some did believe, thank God for that. Verse 34: Howbeit certain men claimed unto him and believed, among which was Dionysius the gate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Uh, Let me tell you something, folks. If you put all your time and money into winning people to Christ, you win one soul to the Lord, and that's all you win. You're back in the black. According to Matthew 16, 26, one soul's worth more than the whole world. So we're just not seeing much happen these days. Well, I understand that. But if you get some people saved, brother, you're back in the black. Amen. You're in the prophet's. The majority of the people are not going to believe. Matthew 7:13 said, Any of the straight gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way which leadeth unto destruction, and many of their be which go in that. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto heaven, and few but there be that find it. Did you did you notice the contrasting terms there? There's a broad way that leads down, many of there be that go in thereat. There's a narrow way that leads up, and few there be that find it. According to the Bible, there are going to be a lot of people in heaven, folks. But there are going to be a lot more than that in hell. My mind, nobody has to go to hell. So do you believe in the resurrection of Christ? Let me give you some logic. The disciples didn't steal his body because they were running scared, and besides that, there were armed guards guarding the tomb, Roman guards. These guys couldn't have messed with it if they'd wanted to. Besides that, if he doesn't rise from the grave, he's not the Messiah. And he's not worth us sacrificing our lives over. The disciples didn't get it. That's logical. Well, the Pharisees didn't steal his body because they're the ones who went to the Roman officials and said, make it as sure as you can. We don't want the disciples to steal his body when claim he rose again. And they did that. So the Pharisees would have had nothing better than a body after three days to prove he's not the Messiah. (laughs) The Romans didn't steal his body because it was not a Roman matter. They could not have cared less. It's not a Roman matter. Pilate would have turned him loose if they'd let him. You know, But anyway, he preached the truth about God, about repentance, about the resurrection. He also preached the truth about judgment. Look at verse 31 again. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. There are two prominent judgments that we are to be concerned about. There's the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible said we're going to be there. 2 Corinthians five ten. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done with it, be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And Paul gave us a passage of Scripture that shows us exactly how that's going to unfold. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. And uh, he recited that all the way through, down to verse 15. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, as wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth they build it their own. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay. Then that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, haste, double, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall clear, for it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work combined, which you have built thereupon, he shall receive reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Yet he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Um. I don't see how anybody can argue that our eternal life is not eternal. <laughs> anyway, the Bible said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, notice this, at his appearing in his kingdom. His appearing seems to me to be a reference to the rapture. His kingdom, a reference to his coming in power and great glory. I can't prove that. It's just something I thought about. We're going to, one of these days, we're going to hear trumpets sound. It's going to sound so loud. It's going to wake up the dead in Christ. About the time they come out of that grave, we're going to be changed, called away to meet the Lord. The Bible said we're going to be changed in the moment and the twinkling of an eye. Now, I don't know how that is in New York, down in Alabama. That's fast, man. One fiftieth part of a second, scientists say, twinkle of an eye. So, when I'm going to get saved when the rapture comes, I'm going to get saved. I want to go too. No, you're not because we're going to be gone before you know what happens. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some churches that go on and have service on Sunday morning following, didn't even know what happened. There's another judgment. It's called the great white throne. I think that's what's in focus here. Um, Verse 31 again, because he hath appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. There is a judgment called the great white throne. John referred to that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open. and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of it. And the sea gave up the dead which were near. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, when a person goes to hell, hell's really not eternal in this respect. Hell is going to give up its inhabitants. And they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And you know what the Bible said that's even more sobering about that than anything else? Judged according to their works. We're going to be judged according to our works at the judgment seat of Christ. But the, these people that kill babies all day and brag about it, even brag about eating babies for breakfast, I think if there's going to be any front seats down there, they're going to have them. There's an old-fashioned preacher in Alabama. He's retired now, and I didn't hear him preach the sermon, but he preached a sermon entitled this, He's Coming and He's Mad. (laughs) I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you're angry about what's happening in America, uh, you are not hold a light how God feels about it. God is angry about that. Anyway, you've been a good audience. I don't need to keep going with this. I want us to stand. Perhaps God spoke into your heart tonight. You need to do business with God. I want you to have the opportunity to do that. While we're standing with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and our pianist comes, Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God that I've had the privilege to share here tonight with these people. And they've been so attentive and listened so well, been such a good audience. That has encouraged me. I pray that you'll have your will in every heart tonight, that nobody would leave this service not having made the moves that you've prompted them to do in their hearts. Lord, I pray that nobody would leave here tonight that doesn't personally know and experientially know the Lord Jesus. Nobody would leave this building tonight that's sound the will of God and they know it. Pray that every question could be settled in every heart before we leave this building. I pray in Jesus' name as our heads remain bowed for a few moments, she's going to play for us. And are you going to lead a song, brothers? I want you to do If God spoke in your heart, you need to use the altar. I want you to come from where you are. You might want to pray for someone else. Now's the time to do it. Now's the time to do it. If you need some counsel, somebody will be here to counsel with you. I don't ever want to preach a sermon, a Bible sermon, without giving people an opportunity to make a decision that they know they need to make. I've had my time and this is yours. And I'm not high pressure, but I love to give you an opportunity. This is your opportunity. While some folks are praying now, there may be some others that need to.